uh, we're always prepared here. Uh, I need a chair. So I'll stand for the moment. Hi, how are you tonight? Thank you. We're recording in the back, right? Okay, awesome. Hooray, hurrah, once again, the smartest man in the world. Greg Proof's Film Club takes place here at uh, Hollywood's most engaging cinematic um, uh, confabulation. The Los Feliz Three here, located in the groovy hipster district. Hi, how are you tonight? The one night you take pictures and I don't have hair, makeup, or a tie on, but I appreciate it. Thank you for being here. Uh, cinephiles and Proof Castilians, tonight we're showing the 1991 classic uh, by Miranar, starring uh, Denzel Washington, um, the fabulous Mississippi Masala, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for coming out for it. I appreciate it. Uh, Jennifer, my wife, uh, is the um, curator of the Greg Proops Film Club, and she picks all the pictures. And um, there's always a reason uh, why we pick a picture, and this picture tonight is no exception. Uh, it's a, a picture about identity. It's a picture about love. It's a picture about sex. It's a picture about loss. It's a picture about families and how they treat you and whatnot. And um, also, I think it's um, an important moment uh, in our country's history where, uh, and that hasn't, it doesn't escape us at the Greg Proops Film Club, with what's going on in the country right now. And we try to reflect it with the pictures that we show. Like, for instance, you may have noticed this week, uh, uh, in Tennessee, uh, two state representatives were ejected from the legislative body there for protesting against gun violence. Um, not for gun violence. Uh, and the reason they were ejected from that legislative body was they weren't white, they were black. Uh, and they were reinstated, I'm happy to say. Uh, Representative Pearson and Representative Jones were both reinstated in the last couple of days. But I don't think you can watch these pictures without the context of life going on around us all the time. And I think Miranar, uh, the filmmaker who made Salon Bombay, which I believe we're also showing at the Cinematheque at some point, uh, this month is uh, absolutely engaged in the context that everything is um, political and that everything is about race, class, and economics. Uh, if you don't think it is, I appreciate that. There's lots of white people who don't think that uh, things are political and that everything's not about gender, race, economics, uh, and uh, uh, and, and like that. Uh, I've had friends say to me uh, over the years, who are no longer my friends, um, I, I hate movies like that. I, I, I want to go to the movies and forget myself. And I think it's just as easy to forget yourself in a romance between a black man and an Indian American woman as it is to forget yourself while you're watching thousands of people be stabbed in the eye um, by a superhero who you have no connection to whatsoever other than evidently you want to wear tights the rest of your life and be seven. Um, I have nothing against superhero movies except everything. Um, I find them punishingly idiotic. Uh, I don't find them entertaining in any way. I prefer old World War II movies if I'm going to watch mindless violence because at least in then there's going to be like, kid, you got to get out there. I don't want to go, Sarge! Um, and you get some awesome dialogue and cliches and stuff like that. For instance, in the movie Battleground, um, which is made after World War II, Ricardo Montalban, um, who's an awesome actor, by the way, not only did he play Khan in The Wrath of Khan, um, he had beautiful hands. The next time you see Ricardo Montalban, uh, have a look at his hands. Um, was a Latino star in an era when there were not a lot of Latino stars. And he, and he plays a Mexican 
in the movie Battleground, and they're caught in the snow in the Battle of the Bulge and the, uh, the icy winter of 1944, fighting the Nazis in 45. Uh, and he goes, I'm from LA, I've never seen snow. Yeah, and that's what you get in movies like that. Um, in superhero movies, I've found, particularly in the Iron Man series, um, horrible things happen, like Gwyneth Paltrow will show up in the middle of the movie. <laughs> and really harsh or mellow. You're like, I'm here to have fun. I'm high. I'm, I'm eating Maltesers or whatever, malted milk balls or raisinettes from a box, you know. And next thing I know, um, there's someone that's not funny or good or has any reason to be on film at all um, blighting the screen with her terrible terrible presence. Um, I mean, I'm singling out Gwyneth Paltrow for uh, probably unfairly. There's just as many other terrible actors out there. Sean Bean. But I mean, uh, she had a part in four or five of the, is it Iron Man um, movies? I knew what it was, but I wanted to ask anyway, to act like I hadn't seen one. And um, uh, uh, it, it, the, the idea that at any point you're going to be entertained by Gwyneth Paltrow um, is the reason why show business is so often so close to falling apart. That and HBO Max rebranding itself as Max, the bulldog who lives down the street from you. <laughs> you know, you spend a lifetime in show business trying to build up a brand. Obviously, the Proops brand, magnificent draw on it. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and known uh, far and wide, all the way from Ireland to Canada. But uh, if you did something like uh, w make HBO home box office, which is what it was called when it started, by the way, I'm old, and I remember when getting cable was exciting, and then pay cable was even more exciting, and then most of the pay cable stations showed movies that were like um, My Long Lunchbox and stuff like that, or After Hours Mattresses or whatever. It was always some sort of soft core thing, you know, cheerleaders run, you know, slightly uh, amok. <laughs> and things like that. Uh, then home box office became HBO when they tightened it up. And uh, then they started making a lot of really interesting shows. And of course, over the years, uh, uh, for instance, uh, um, uh, The Sopranos and whatnot, and Sex in the City. And, you know, you can think what you like about Sex in the City. Obviously, uh, it's awesome racismness, racist, race, it's awesome racism will always stand. I could barely get that out. Um, and uh, The Sopranos' mindless violence, especially in the last few seasons, will always be something we can always hold on to emotionally. Um, but the, a lot of the writing was really good, things like True Detective and whatnot, which for four or five episodes was one of the best TV shows of all time. It really was. But that's all you can come to expect from everything. You know what it is. Show business makes something good, and then they make it over, and then they make it over, and then it becomes a pale imitation of itself, and then Gwyneth Paltrow's in the third one. So that's how these things happen. Um, but to, mil to build a brand up like that and have all these great shows, um, and then uh, and these and hit shows this year even for HBO and then come out today and announce that they're rebranding themselves as Max, which is first of all a name that no one really has anymore. It, it was really really popular, um, say during the Roman Empire when Const thank you when <laughs> Constantine had to fight Maxentius at the bridge. That was a, a, a very pivotal battle. There was also a Holy Roman Emperor named Maximilian, and also a, a, a puppet emperor of Mexico who the French installed during the Civil War, our Civil War. Uh, his name was Maximilian as well. Those are the Maxes I think of. Then there's Max Perlick, the awesome actor. And that's about it, really. 
I think when you think Max, you think Cinemax. So what they've done is take a brand that they've built for 30 years and make you think of another brand that's right next to it on the goddamn dial. <laughs> now, I'm sure someone got a raise for this. And I'm sure there was a big meeting and I'm sure they had a, uh, you know, a, 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 a blue sky session then a brainstorm session. Then they sent out for food. Then they were abusive to their assistants and then they brought in more people and then they made a big decision. And then if I questioned you, if I, if you were on the board of HBO and I said, why did you rebrand as Max when you were HBO and everybody knew what you were, you would go, fuck you. I just signed a $43 billion deal. <laughs> And so that sort of wins the day, really. There's no arguing that anymore. I can't come back at you and go, but it still is dumb. Because they'll go, $43 billion. Do you realize how much money that is? And I'm like, yeah, enough to pay everyone so that Gwyneth Paltrow doesn't have to be in a movie again for the rest of time. We could actually be paid back for all the movies we saw that she was in. And for all the Oscars that Meryl Streep was nominated for that she shouldn't have gotten. And the crowd goes quiet. Uh, so that's what I'm talking about with this movie tonight. <laughs> no, I don't think Miranera approaches uh, pictures the same way. I think she's trying to look for that human element. And uh, when we talk about a human element, let's talk a little bit about, as I said, about Tennessee today. This movie's called Mississippi Ma Masala because it was really shot in Greenville, Mississippi, where a bunch of Indian Americans uh, moved from Uganda, which is a, also a, a very big plot point in this. So now we've got Mother Africa, Mother India, and uh, uh, our uh, homeland, as we like to call it, America. All in one big, as we like to say so frequently about our country, melting pot. Uh, and uh, if you go to the south of the United States, my family's from Mississippi, my mother's from Mississippi. I didn't uh, grow up in Mississippi. I, uh, I'm not from Mississippi. I didn't go to school. And well, no one goes to school in Mississippi. The point is, yeah, Mississippi jokes are awesome because they're all true, and um, they are funny. Uh, like, uh, for instance, uh, uh, they don't make. It's what do I say? It's the lowest uh, per capita income, highest illiteracy rate, highest poverty rate. It's a little slice of Haiti right here on our shores. Except they don't make baseballs, and the music sucks. But. Uh, the reason why it's so easy to pick on Mississippi is because, um, and let's cut right to the chase, white people have controlled it for 300 years, and they've turned it into this place. Mississippi is a place of immense um, culture and unbelievable literary contributions to America. There's no Faulkner or Dizzy Dean or Eudora Welty or the blues without Mississippi. Um, it is, in fact, the font uh, of so much creativity and artistry that America's enjoyed. Um, the white people there really felt Im Im impelled, compelled, to uh, make sure that no one else had anything ever, and that they knew that, and that they could be stomped down into submission. And that's why it's so easy to make fun of Mississippi. A lot of white people, particularly people here on the uh, West Coast, here in Lower California, will say things like, well, fuck Mississippi and Texas and Alabama and those places. Why don't we just you know, cut them off? And well, one, that's a stupid idea. Um, because a lot of our history um, emanates from there, too. Um, a lot of my relatives live there, so fuck you. And uh, three, it misunderstands the whole point. You're confusing the governments of these states with the people of these states. Um, it's like when you go on vacation or you go overseas. Uh, if you go to Europe or whatnot, 
Uh, I remember going to visit France when uh, W was uh, um, uh, made president, like Ocknaughton. He ascended after his father's throne. And by the way, after uh, uh, Reagan's election, W's two elections, and Orange 45's election, I was surprised Haiti didn't invade us to install a democracy. Um, because those elections were as rigged as any third world election has ever been. Banana Republic doesn't begin to describe how rigged W's election over Albert Gore was. And I did have a friend say to me, but the paper said W won by 435 votes. <laughs> that one really made me happy. Uh, no one has ever won the presidency by 435 votes, you guys. And Orange 45 didn't win the presidency. That was an enormous, as you remember, uh, FBI wave of uh, media collusion and uh, uh, unbelievable misogyny. I'm certain there's people here tonight who are mildly ruining the day that they um, thought that Hillary was a bad candidate. Um, now you see where we are. Uh, I see people wearing masks here. No one would be wearing a mask if Hillary had been president. I just want to say that, first of all. And if you think it's otherwise or whatever, you're Michigana, as we say at HBO, um, <laughs> before we change our name to Mox. <laughs> um, by the way, the, the Greg Proops Film Club from now on is going to be called Prokes. Just so everybody, because we're going to bundle it all into one thing. Uh, and there's loads of nice people in all of what we like to call the red states. And they need a voice. And the way you can help them get a voice is to kind of participate in democracy and stuff like that. And maybe, and you might think about it for a second, maybe not be the racist, misogynist piece of shit that you are. Now, mind you, I'm only, you guys are here tonight, I'm not directly addressing you. There's people who listen to this. Uh, uh, we have tens of listeners on the internet. And um, I'm always reminding white people that they might think about being less racist and less misogynist. And of course, white people's answer is, what? I'm busy. Um, so uh, Hillary was an awesome candidate and as honest as you could be really as a politician. And then I know that there's going to be someone here who's going to go, they all suck and both parties are the same. <laughs> if after uh, a million people died of COVID and we had riots in the streets and the greatest racial reckoning since I was a child, and after having um, Biden and Harris um, administration for two years, and you've seen the amount of pedophilia and gun worship and anti-women, uh, anti-choice uh, legislation that's gone down by the Republicans, and you can still stand by the statement that you think both parties are the same, I want to come over to your house, man. We're going to party. Because whatever you're taking has made your sensibilities completely illogical. And you're fucking high on your own supply because, uh, and the crowd's like, I thought we came here to talk about film. As I said at the beginning, everything is fucking political. From an Iron Man movie to Hamburger 2, the movie, or whatever, uh, uh, to this movie tonight, all movies are political. Everything that happens in your life is political. Your interaction with the people who work in this theater is political. Whether you, you choose to be nice to them or not, whether you choose to tip people when you're out or whatever, whether, whether you work hard at your work or you skimp and don't work hard because you hate the people you work for, that's all politics. Politics are personal. And that's what the best of film, I think, um, can uh, get into. I want to talk a little bit about the relationship um, that um, Sarita Chowdhury, by the way, this is Sarita Chowdhury's first movie. 
she came to, to Miranara, the director, and wanted to work on the film. And she was so beautiful and captivating and had such a, a fantastic presence that Miranara put her in the film, and she's the lead. Now, you may have seen her in such movies as, hi, uh, a, a Perfect Murder with Gwyneth Paltrow. Yeah, everything's a circle. Time is a flat circle. Uh, Sarita Chowdhury is a second fiddle to Gwyneth Paltrow in A Perfect Murder and um, is in maybe two or three scenes and you remember her because of her um, evocative uh, presence on screen. Um, she came to work on the picture and as I say, ended up in it and the relationship she has with her parents in this movie, they're quite upset with her for dating a black man and Denzel Washington's family is upset with him for dating an Indian woman. And I would suggest right now that a lot of white people in this country, I have to hear this a lot, and I travel around everywhere. Last week I was in Knoxville, Louisville, Greensboro, Denton, Little Rock, uh, I'm forgetting a bunch of places. I was in every place named Ville and Borough in the South. Uh, and by the way, there are hilariously Whitesburgs and Whitesvilles, which is, just makes me cry laughing. Oh, and we were in Lynchburg as well, which you think at this point, think about the name, you guys. You may want to be changing that at some point. But it was named after a man, I know. But uh, no, there's not like an AR-15-ville. I know, it's not funny. You were right not to laugh. But in a few years, when you listen to this podcast back, you'll be like, I was there the night he did that one. <laughs> and the humor of it will creep up on you. Mm. I'm like HBO. I'm a little before my time. And then I rebranded too early. Um, and now I forgot what I was saying because I've cleverly led myself off the tack there. Oh, uh, that um, I hear this a lot wherever I go um, from different people. Um, I don't like where this country's headed. Um, we're all divided. And I think, well, why don't you like where the country's headed? We have a, uh, an administration that seems to be fairly responsive. There's lots of nice people, um, even Democratic governors in southern states and Lots of people fighting for civil rights and freedom. People seem to be more motivated than they ever were to do the right thing. There's lots of young people who are involved in the process now that weren't a few years ago because of the dastardly deeds that have been done. It actually uh, um, sparked their consciousness and made them more woke. And yes, I will say woke. Uh, um, the people who think woke is keeping me from doing the comedy that I want um, are generally kind of sexist and racist and fascist. And if you hear a comic complain that they're being impeded, trammeled, and fettered by society's bourgeois mores, then generally they're really rich and a dickhead. Thank you. Um, no one is telling comics what to say. You can go right over here, about three miles from here. There's a comedy store and the place next to it that I forget the name of. And you can hear people say the most sexist, racist, callous, fucking unthought out bullshit you'd ever want to hear in your life. And you can hear it night after night and no one's telling them not to do it at any point. No one's telling Joe Rogan what to fucking say, I assure you. Um, so the people who complain about it, it's like when the Republicans say they're victims because they're Christians and stuff. It doesn't really... Um, it doesn't really wash because it requires logic and irony, and those two elements are never going to get in, which is why my giant quest of doing a film club and talking about show business and then injecting irony and logic into it is why this film club is where it is today, at the top of the charts. 
uh, if there's one thing show business doesn't require, it's reflection at any point. You'll never go to a meeting uh, in an office in show business and have them go, tell us what you think. That's not going to happen. Tell us what you think about what we're doing. What can we do better that would make you like it more? Because they're not going to say that. Um, they'll say things like, you have a lot of fans here. You really do. You should meet Willie over in the mailroom. He loves what you, he loves what you do. We want to be in your business. How can we be in your business? We want to be in your business. No, wait a minute. I thought I came to beg. Um, so... Uh, people say they're not happy with the direction the country's going. And I'm like, well, can you be more specific about the direction that you're not liking? And they'll go like, well, I don't know. You know, price of gas. It's like, <laughs> price of gas went down. Well, you know, baby formula. Baby formula? How old are you? 58. Well, then what do you give a shit about baby formula? Is it, is it that there's a black woman vice president from San Francisco? Is it that there's a black woman on the Supreme Court? And is it that there's two lesbian governors and that the woman governor of Michigan is kicking ass? Is that really what's stuck across um, the tiny hole in your peepee? -pee? Is that really? Could we get to what's what, why you don't like the direction the country's going? That women of color and that women are having too much voice and it's really rubbing you the wrong way because you've been able to be lazy and indifferent your whole life. And that now with two, you know, now you've got Kamala Harris and you're like, well, I don't see much of her. I don't think. <laughs> Funny, did it ever occur to you she might have had to work harder than you? Um, to get to be vice president and uh, that she might be president one day and that it might be a positive thing like it was when we had Barack Obama as president and you saw what having um, an intelligent, keen, insightful, insightful, incisive, measured, uh, uh, um, good-hearted um, family person who happened to be black did to America. America's not divided. There's just a bunch of people who can't handle anything outside of what's been going on for 300 years. And having a black man who loved his family, who was extraordinarily bright, who didn't shoot from the hip and answer stupid things with stupid answers, who thought about everything he said because he was a Harvard law professor. He never said that he was turned on by family members or anything like that, or that other people should be thrown in jail that disagreed with him. Not once did Obama say anything like that. And it made 23%, 25% of the country literally lose their minds to the point where they put on helmets and mankinis and attacked the Capitol with baseball bats and zip ties. And if you don't think that's true, um, you're willing, I'm, you're absolutely entitled to your opinion. The idea that, let's point it this way, a Jew and a black man from Georgia were elected to the Senate and a black woman swore them in and the next day a bunch of white people attacked the Capitol wearing Viking hats. It's kind of a cause and effect thing. It's not like this big weird, how did that happen? Where did it come from? Um, and so this movie... Uh, I think addresses a good deal of those issues. She has to answer for why she's in love 
with a black person. He has to answer for why he's in love with an Indian person. And we have a vice president who is both black and Indian right now, which I think speaks directly to the heart of the matter and how you feel in your heart. I'm not asking you to agree with me because then it would be boring. Then it would be like I was the boss and everyone would be like, yeah, that's right, Greg. Um, there's always room for discussion and that's what you never get, I think, in regular mainstream media and things like that. You never get the actual opportunity to think about something and then come to your own opinion on it because you've informed yourself. Rather, we're supposed to react to things and then be angry or not angry. And Miranair, I think, never asks anyone to do that. If you've seen Salam Bombay, which is another one of her pictures, um, it takes place amongst the destitute poor children of Bombay. And she really used destitute poor children in the movie. She whipped them into shape. I'm not kidding. And made them show up on the set every day. They had to promise not to fuck up. And she made a movie about them that's inconceivably moving. And with this movie, she was able to get Denzel Washington, who I agree with my friends Kevin and Camo, who used to do a fabulous podcast called Denzel Washington is the Greatest Actor of All Time. And there's no question that he's in the running for the greatest cinema actor of all time. This movie was made right after he won the Academy Award for Glory, which I don't know if you've seen that picture. It's also a movie about race, economics, progress, America, slavery, uh, uh, servitude, bondage, and all the things that America's made of. Because America's made of these things. They're bad things, but they're what we're made of too. It's not enough to go, oh my God, they're bad, I don't want to think about it. It's a much more constructive, I think, to include all of these things in the discussion, accept them, and then try to process them using art. And that's what we do. Uh, there's no other way to understand things that are so desperately awful and so difficult like your family. Now, I don't know if you love your family. If you do, I love you for it. Hooray for you. But thank you. But not everybody loves their family. For instance, and this will probably bunk a couple of your high, I'm absolutely thrilled that my father's dead, okay? I'm just over the fucking moon about it. And he died a long time ago. But if he was alive again, I would wish he was dead again. That's how much I am glad that he's dead. Because he gave nothing to my family or me or society or anything like that. And I don't think I'm a bad person for thinking that. If I get to the afterworld and there's literally a guy there in a robe with a scythe or whatever and someone else with a horn and my dad comes up to me, he's not going to be bummed because he was that big of an asshole. <laughs> But this movie's about that as well. Uh, um, I think that there's no other way uh, to talk about things like that. Your parents' uh, race, uh, a submission, what America asks of people in order to assimilate. America asks people who assimilate, I have Jews on one side of my family, hillbillies on the other, um, to become American. And in order to become American, you have to squash other groups that come after you. And this movie is deeply involved in that. In order to love someone who's different than you, you have to explain yourself to everyone. In order to not hate your fucking parents, you have to do gymnastics emotionally. And the only way, I think, to deal with all these things is through metaphor. I remember interviewing a man, a French Quebec author, who wrote a book about um, the um, genocide in Rwanda. And he was a reporter there, and he'd covered it from wall to wall. The Hutus, the Tutsis, the whole thing. And I'm sure you might have seen the picture, Hotel Rwanda, which is a marvelous bloody picture. And um, uh, Don Cheadle and Nick Nolte are quite good in it. And I met Romeo Dallaire, who plays uh, 
who Nick Nolte plays in the movie, who was also French-Canadian and, and was in charge of the UN forces there, who, when I saw him at this food um, uh, thing, pre a hunger prevention right-on liberal thing that was run by right-wing um, uh, real estate developers from LA, that was the kind of benefit it was, uh, said that um, when he was in Rwanda, uh, a young 11-year-old stuck a carbine up his nose, right? The end of a carbine rifle right up his nose. And the audience went quiet, and he said, I dropped a candy bar on the ground. And the kid dropped the rifle and picked up the candy bar. So if you want to understand what hunger's about, I'll give you an abject lesson in it. Then Jeff Daniels had to go up after him, and no one listened to him in the crowd. And I had to introduce Jeff Daniels after Romeo Delar. And I almost said, thank you, General Delar. You've given us food for thought. <laughs> but I refrained from saying that on the day. This French-Canadian author, I said to him, you're a reporter. Why didn't you write a report about the um, genocide in Rwanda? And he said, I wrote a love story, Greg, so that people would be engaged by it and understand from it. And that's what the power of metaphor and storytelling is. And um, I think Mirinaire is a master of it. I think Denzel Washington is an instrument of God. And I think you'll find that you're going to enjoy the living devil out of this 1991 classic by Mirinaire. Uh, I give you now the fantastic Mississippi Masala. Cheers.